2, and uh, that's where we're going to be this evening, uh, in Psalm 40, 42. And um, we have, I've in the past taught through, we were going through the book of Psalms, um, verse by verse, and we made it all the way up to Psalm 41, and that brought an end to a section. And as we move on into Psalm 42, we're going to really look at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Um, they're they're, 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 they're um, appointed to different authorship as far as the men who wrote these psalms. We know that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. It's really the Word of God. But you see these psalms, these two psalms, you need to look at them together. And I don't know about you, but in my own life, Maybe it's my, my futile attempt to take an infinite God and understand him in my finite way, which isn't possible. So I don't, I don't want to even suggest that that's something that we can reasonably do. We, man, in our finite, in our, in our, in our, um, in our limited understanding, can't understand an infinite God. But God understands us. It tells us in the Psalms that he knows that we're but dust, right, that, that he understands us in our weaknesses, and in, in, our, in our struggles. And, and so he speaks to us in a way and makes himself known to us in a way that we can still relate to him, that we can have a relationship with him. And so as I study through these psalms together, uh, there's, there's a, for lack of a better word, there's a formula that's being given to us that we can apply to our lives to help us relate to God in times of need. And I want to start off by by just pointing you to that there's three things here that we're going to go through that the psalmists bring to our attention and and and, and if you're taking notes uh, uh, keep just write down these three things because this is what's kind of being outlined for us as we go through uh what we're being taught here and and the first thing or the first um a point to consider is is that there's a longing for god that we we read about a longing for god and that longing for God progresses or transitions in these two psalms into a remembering God. And again, I want you to see this as a formula that we can apply to our lives to help us get really, I think, from a point of, of uh, discouragement, a point of despair, a point of lack of faith, a point where when you're going through hardship or struggle in life, that you can transition from those feelings of discouragement, despair, uh, hopelessness, uh, oh, being overwhelmed, being discouraged. There's really a formula here that's being given to us in relationship to knowing God to move us to that place of joy, to that place of um, assurance, to that place of praising God in spite of maybe what challenges or difficulties we're facing. So you have a longing for God, then you have this remembering of God, and then ultimately that, 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 that path that we travel down that, these, that the psalmists are taking us here is to this place where we're trusting God. And so keep that in mind as we go through this. And if you look at Psalm 42, if you have a study Bible like I do, not all Bibles have these headings, but in, in Psalm 42, it, it, it should say at the beginning of it, it should say book two. And when we began going through the book of Psalms, I pointed out to you that it's really brought to us in four divisions there's a total of 150 psalms and you can break them down into these different divisions and this psalm psalm 42 is the first psalm of that second book of the book of psalms and in total 
there are four, four divisions. And most of the Psalms that we've studied through up to this point were books that were written by David. Most of the, the Psalms were given to that authorship of David. In fact, 73 out of the 150 Psalms that there are are credited to David as far as Psalms that he had written. Now, this second book of Psalms that begins with Psalm 42 and goes, it'll take us through Psalm 72. And, and even though David also wrote many of these Psalms, we see that this Psalm in particular, as well as several others in the second book, are also written by the sons of Korah. And I love these guys. I love the sons of Korah. I love their Psalms. If I love David's Psalms as well, but when you study out the Psalms of Korah, for me personally, I think I relate to them because of who these guys are. And I've previously taught about the sons of Korah in, in some, into some great detail, and, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time detailing it again, but before we look at these words that are written by them in Psalm 42, I want to remind us of the sons of Korah because I think it reveals to us a heart behind this psalm. And, and so there's a knowing the person who's written the letter to you and what they've gone through helps out a lot. You've, you've, you've heard me say it before, and I love it where it's where this, the saying is, it's, it's don't trust a man that doesn't walk without a limp. And that's a reference to Jacob, you know, and, and God changing him into Israel. And, and what I mean by that is, is what you know is, is Jacob ended up wrestling with God, right? Jacob, the deceiver. And as he wrestled with God, as he wrestled with God, he ended up having his hip dislocated. And some people say that because of that, Jacob walked with a limp. And so if, if you don't trust a man that's never, that doesn't walk with a limp, it's if you don't trust a man that's never worked it out with God, wrestled with God, where you don't know who he is, you don't know his story, you don't know his past. And, and uh, uh, Rich and Cindy invited Autumn and I over to dinner last night. It's the first time we've got to go over to their house. And, and, and so Rich put the question on the table of, of, you know, how did you guys meet and, and um, how did you come to know the Lord? And basically he wanted to know, you know, do you walk with a limp? <laughs> you know, tell me about your wrestling with God. And um, because you get to know a lot about a person when you, a married couple and how they met and, and how you came to the Lord and what, what your life was like before and what's your life like afterwards. And you really get to know what a person's like. Well, in the same way, in the same manner, I think we benefit by knowing, well, who is David? Or who, who is these sons of Korah? And, and, and what's their stories? What are they like? And so as we look to the word of God, if you remember, Korah was of the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. Was a, and he had the honor and privilege of serving in the tabernacle. Korah did. However, what we know about Korah is that he was not content with what God had given him. And he, in his lack of contentness, he coveted what others had. As he looked around at his other Levite priests and the fellow duties that had been given to them, he, he, didn't really, he wasn't uncontent with what God had called him to, what God had appointed him to. And according to Genesis chapter 46, verse 11, we know that Levi... Uh, had three sons. 
And from these three sons, all of the descendants came, including Korah. Uh, there was Gershon, Miraria, uh, and Kohath. And the descendants of Gershon, when we read in Genesis chapter 49, they were responsible for the care of the tabernacle, tent, meaning specifically the outer coverings, the curtains at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the curtains in the courtyard, and the curtains to the entrance of the courtyard, and all the surrounding uh, 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 tent pieces and um, uh, veils and those kinds of things for the tabernacle and altar. Uh, the ropes and everything that was related to their use. Likewise, the sons of Miriah, um, they were responsible for the structure part of it. When you look and read about it, the framing, its crossbars, its posts, its braces, its bracketing, all the equipment, and 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 um, and the tent pegs and, and and the ropes for the structures of 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 supporting all the veils. However, if you look at the the Kohathites, and they were they had. A, what I would consider a greater honor, a greater privilege in their, in their duty, in their call. And they had the privilege of taking care of the sanctuary, the most holy place, and, and, the, and the, all of the things associated with that. That meant the ark and the, 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 the tabernacle for the showbread, the lamp, the altars, and, and all of the articles in the sanctuary that the priest used for ministry. And um, they themselves were under the direct supervision of the high priest, Eleazar, uh, uh, one of the sons of Aaron. But unlike the Gershonites and unlike the Merarites who are allowed to transport all of their items in carts, so they would take all of their items, they'd load it on carts, and their oxen would pull all of their heavy things as, 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 they, as the children of Israel were going through the, the Sinai wilderness, what we know about the Kohites, because they had the special things, is that um, they could not carry them in carts. They had to carry them on their shoulders. They had to pack them themselves. And they had this difficult burden of transporting all these items from place to place, wherever God led them through the Sinai wilderness. But, um, and this was because they were never allowed to touch these items themselves. They were the holy things set apart to God. And if they did so, if they were to touch them, they would be struck down dead. God made no compromise. And so they were under this strict orders. And so according to Numbers chapter 4, the priests, Aaron and his sons, what they would do is they would first, they could touch these things, they would take them and they would first wrap them, all these sacred offerings and special coverings before they were given to the Kohites to transport and so really the Kohites, even though they were dealing with the holy things, the, 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 the special things, um, they were really the oxen, you know, and, and, and it may have even seemed to them to be a demeaning kind of a thing. Consequently, more, many of the Kohathites began to resent the task, the duty, the appointment that they had from God, and were told to begin to covet the role that Aaron had, the high priest who's Aaron's son, who had been called to serve as the high priest or as the priests. And one of the Kohathites was this prideful man by the name of Korah. And in Numbers chapter 16, it tells us that Korah, along with two of the other men of um, the descendants of Kohathites, meaning uh, two men named Doth, Dothan and um, Abram, 
they together rose up in pride and they led a rebellion against Moses and against Aaron. And in, in conjunction with that, they brought 250 leaders from the, from the congregation to contend with Moses and Aaron. And in Numbers chapter 16, they came before Moses and Aaron with this accusation. And in verse 3, it says, They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves. In other words, who do you think you are? What makes you any greater than us? You take too much upon yourself, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. It says, why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And, and um, that, that was so far from the truth, it was ridiculous. Moses and Aaron had never exalted themselves above anyone. On the contrary, they exhibited great humility and served God's people in the exact way that God had pointed them and God had called them to. However, in light of this accusation, what we know is that Moses went before God, took the accusation before God, and basically said, okay, God, you deal with these people. And um, God instructed Moses to summon these rebellious men to stand alongside him uh, uh, with Aaron, and that all of them would burn incense to God before God so that God would demonstrate which one he had chosen. And this is when God dealt with Korah. And he dealt with them in really, the Bible tells us, a very terrifying way. And in Numbers chapter 16, we're told that God demonstrated that ultimately that Moses was his man. And he did so by causing the earth to open up its mouth and swallow Korah along with all of his associates who were rebellion. And, and in addition to the people, this says that their entire households and all of their possessions were consumed as well. And all this, this clearly marked the end of Korah. We later discovered that Korah's sons, the ones who are accounted for these psalms that we're talking about, that Korah's sons were graciously spared. And even though we're never told in Scripture why God spared them, whatever the reason is, we know that God still had a plan. I love that. God still had a purpose for the descendants of Korah. And in Exodus chapter 6, it tells us that Korah's sons were Aser, Elkanah, and Abisaph. And these men, and through these men and their descendants, we know that God did some pretty awesome things. For example, in 1 um, Chronicles chapter 6, there's a genealogical record, and, and it's the, the genealogy of Elkanah, and it takes us to the great prophet Samuel. Samuel was a son of Korah, was a descendant of Elkanah. Furthermore, in um, 1 Chronicles chapter 9, it tells us that the sons of Korah were appointed by David when he became king to be the doorkeepers and custodians of the tabernacle. In, in other words, they were put in a trusted position of who could come in and who could not in and out of the tabernacle. <coughs> and also in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we read about another group of Korahites who joined King David in many of his mi uh, uh, military exploits. And, and so they were also seen as part of David's mighty men of valor. And, and it's a pretty cool thing. And they were experts in, 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 in battle. But the most remarkable thing, I think, to note about the sons of Korah is that during the time of King David, they were appointed or they were made the leaders of all song and of all worship that took place in the tabernacle. Leading the congregation 
children of Israel into the worship of God. That was their responsibility. And because of this, we have these 20-some psalms that were written by the sons of Korah. (coughs) And really, their story reminds us, if we look at them and look back on their story, it reminds us of God's grace. Gives us a picture of God's grace and how God is able to bring up, as we read in the Scripture, as God's able in the book of Isaiah tells us to bring up the beauty out of the ashes. And, and, and furthermore, of, of it, it teaches us and shows us um, of God's redemptive plan and that God redeems and that he has a renewed purpose for anyone, no matter what your past is, no matter what you come from, what you've gone through, God redeems and he puts a renewed purpose for anyone who puts his trust in him and submits to his will. And man, my life is a testimony of that. From where I've come from and what I've done, God's brought up beauty out of the ashes. He's, he's given me a renewed purpose, and, 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 and that's simply because I've trusted in him. I've followed after his will. And these psalms, when I look at that in light of it, these psalms that the sons of Korah wrote, they really point us to these truths, to God's redemptive plan, to God's... Um, uh, renewed purpose for our lives, for God's, uh, it, it, you see just an outflowing from the hearts of these guys and the, and the psalms and the words that they wrote of their great love for God because of God's grace upon them, not getting what they deserved. And, and, and it's seen as they express in their psalms the spirit of great gratitude and humility to, an idy, to, to a really a mighty an awesome God that we too serve today. And so in Psalm 42, we begin to read with that kind of context, and they write with this first expression of a longing for God, giving us this imagery. They say, as a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually ask me, where is your God? Now, if anybody has experienced great grief or great suffering or a time of trouble in your life where you've just gone, I do not know how this is going to be fixed. I don't know how this is going to be over. Or how about a time in your life where, you've, where you know that God's working on you and, 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 and you come to this place where you go, God, I'm, I'm dying I feel like I'm dying. And, and truly, you are dying in the sense that the old man, that old nature is being put to death like, and like the Bible tells us so that, that the new man, the new nature may live in us where, where, where we're crucifying the flesh. But in that moment, you just feel completely broken. And, 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 and in those moments, it's like that where I think at times where, where your tears are, are literally your food. You can't escape it. Day and night, your tears are your food. And he said, not only that, he says, not only am I going through this, but those around me, those who know you're a believer, they watch your suffering, they see your despair, they see your situation, and it's almost like they're mocking you and they're going, where's your God? And so it's like insult to injury that they're describing here. And and, and in verse 4, they go on to say, and when I remember these things, He says, when I remember these things, I poured out my soul within me. For I used to go 
with the multitude. And when I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept the pilgrim's feet. And then he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of Mizar. The deep calls it the deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All of your waves and your billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night. His song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to take these words that were written um, so many years ago, truly, God, from a heart that was calling out to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take these words and see how they apply to our own lives, to our own situations in those times when our own hearts cry out and longing for you, when we feel discouraged, when we feel just, just overwhelmed by our circumstances, when despair enters in. And God, may we see the um, journey that you took um, this man through that caused him to write these words. May we see that journey and so we may apply it to our own lives and end up in the spot where we trust in you, where we praise you, where we put our hope in you in spite of what we're going through. Lord, that we can understand that you're faithful to us no matter what. And ultimately, God, that you're sovereign and you're in control of everything that we feel at times is so out of control. Lord, we love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Now, if we look back to the beginning of this, and we look at this really, this longing for God that is being described in a really poetic way. I mean, it's beautiful as the psalmist writes this. And, and as we look at this, I want to point out that we're not really given the specific circumstances or the specific, specific surrounding the context of the psalm. In other words, why is the psalmist in this place? We're not given his circumstances. And, and there's a lot of speculation when you read different commentators. And different commentators have a lot of different opinions about what's going on. And, and, you know, I don't like to speculate in those situations, so I'm not. But I do want to point out what may appear to be obvious or what is evident. And then the fact is, is that what is evident is that the psalmist is describing a time when we read this when he's far away from Jerusalem. Specifically, far away from the, the, the house of God. And, 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 and unable, it appears, to go there, to go before God. And, um, and even though we're not told why he could not get there, 
we see that traveling to Jerusalem and appearing before God was something that he had previously been able to do. And that in doing so, it had given him great joy and he had done it with some kind of regularity in the past. And, you know, fortunately for us, we don't live in that time where God's presence, if you will, was contained to the tabernacle or to the temple of the most holy of holies. And, and, and it seems to be that, that, that in the midst of this initial problems or whatever was going on is, is that ultimately the psalmist, as he was longing for God, was almost limited also in his understanding of God's presence and availability to him. And, and, and that's, that's true, I think, in our own lives today, that lots of times we, 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 we limit God in the midst of the trials or the tribulations or the circumstances that we're in, and we limit his availability to us or his access to us or our access to him, not because of a geographical thing, but because we look at our circumstances around us and we go, God is limited. And, and in that is when we go to the same kind of place, even though when we belonging for God, we put these limitations on God, and ultimately we kind of isolate ourselves from what we know that we need or where we have gone in the past where we found that joy in knowing that God's got things under control or God's taking care of the problems or the situations that we have. And so as we see this and we look at this, we see that... Um, there's untold circumstances that are now prohibiting him, the psalmist, from going to the house of God and not being able to be there with other worshipers. And because of this isolation that he was feeling, he was grieved in his heart because he felt as if he was in, he was in question and he felt as if God had forgotten him. Lord, why have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? And, 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 and I believe that 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 feeling distant from God and even feeling as if God has forgotten us is something that we've all felt at one time or another. And, and, and therefore, I think we can relate to these feelings that are being expressed, these questions that are being asked to God. And in light of this, these, in light of these words, we see how um, this, this is this is. We really get a, a, an, an insight into the person or into the heart. It's intensely personal, what we're reading here. And I think that the words in this psalm become even more real to us as we see the psalmist begin to wrestle with the Lord in light of his situation, in light of his feelings, in light of his longings, and in light of his limitations. And, 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 and he's in doing so, he fluctuates like we often do in these situations between faith in despair. And I don't know about you, I get in these situations and man, there's times where I'm in faith, where I'm looking at God and there's times where I am despair when I'm in this situation where I feel that there's no resolve to it. <coughs> and uh, I love the intensely personal part of it because um, the Psalms are able to express, at least for me, the way that I'm feeling when I don't even have the words to speak, when I'm when I'm feeling these things and I come to the Psalms and I read these and it's like, yeah. And that helps me express to God in a, in a way that I feel unable to do so. And that's why I love going to the Psalms in these times. And uh, 
because I can relate to them, and words are being spoken, and there's an intercession that's taking place. I think God's really interceding for me in that, in that, in that time, and it really begins to help me understand what I'm feeling. Not only what I'm feeling, but what I need to do as well. And, and as, we, as we find ourselves also being able to relate to this time where we're fluctuating between faith and despair, I, I, I see the psalmist here, uh, and, I, and, and, I, and, I, and I counted it, he's really question, he questions the Lord six times in 11 verses. And, and, I, and I've talked to people and I've counseled with people where they struggle in these times and they think that questioning God in these moments isn't right. But I see it in Scripture. I don't think we stay in that place, but I think it's all right to go to God. Where are you? Have you forsaken me? Have you turned your back on me? And I, and I think that those feelings are real and those questions are real. And we see that six times the psalmist comes first and he's wondering why do, he's, he's saying, God, why don't you do something for me? You ever been there? God, why aren't you doing something for me? Do you not see what I'm going through? How can this be okay with you? And yet, as in the case with many of the Psalms, what I want to point out to you is that the psalmist isn't staying there. He's not bringing us into his depression and his despair and going, hey, look, too bad. He's taking us through this progression. And, 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 and in this, as with many cases of the Psalms, we see this progression as he moves from the place of doubt, from the place of despair, to the place of praise. And ultimately to the place of trust in a mighty and awesome and loving God. Now as we... We read on, I want to point out that, again, the first emotion being shared with us in these first five verses is this deep sense of longing for God. And, and um, that in and of itself, when we go through hard things, I think is worth it. Um, I was gone from my family for three weeks in, in um, Africa on that mission trip. I was away from you guys for three weeks and you know and there was a longing and if there and it helped me understand and realize and see a little place in my heart that you guys have that uh, that my wife has that my kids have that you don't always get to see when you're around each other and and not that the psalmist not that this guy was really that god really was away from him god never is away from us but often because of our circumstances we feel like God's not there. But if that produces or if it helps us to realize that sense of longing, that sense of, man, I need you, God, then, man, isn't that great in and of itself? You know, for me to be able to, to see just how important my wife is and my kids are and the church is and you guys in my life, that's a good thing. You begin to see value in that. And so in this time of despair, the guy's longing for God and he's expressed of this and in fact it's expressed and beautifully describes with these words as the deer pants for the water brooks so my soul for you pants O God and in light of this we're given this picture as you can see of a deer that is in need of water but it's not just a need of water to satisfy a thirst it's not like you come to the end of the day and you're thirsty and you're going to go to your fridge and get a drink of water it's not that kind of description but it's this longing it's this sense of if i don't get you i'm going to die it's it's the the wordage here is a longing for a drink of water or or for for the brook of water in order to revive um 
from the from like an ex- state of exhaustion. And in other words, a desiring to drink or quench our thirst is one thing, but we know that there's a deeper level of thirst that we can experience. And this is longing for something um, 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 to sustain life. And the psalmist used this to describe here for us how his soul was thirsting for the living God. Like, if I don't get you, if I don't have you in my life, if you're not intervening in this situation, I'm going to die. I'm not going to be able to go on. In fact, in verse 3, we're told that all day and all night, he says he was feeling the pain caused by this separation that he was believing that he was from God. And, and again, he was attributing this at this moment to, to a geographical thing where he couldn't go to the house of God. And therefore, he was separated and he was feeling the pain caused by this. But also from the constant ridicule of people around him who were saying, where is your God? And often we get in these situations, and it can even come from believers. Think about back to the story of Job, right? I mean, Job's going through some really rough things. And his friends come, these these counselors, and they basically say, where's your God? What'd you do? You know, and they go through this, and they're they're not comforting in any way. And lots of times we have even believers who want to come alongside of us, and they don't have the right words to speak. And it's it's like that. It's like, you don't understand what I'm going through. What are you talking about? And there can be that time where we feel like insults being added to the injury that we're in. And it doesn't always have to be an enemy. It can just be a misunderstanding. And you feel all alone, even more so. It's, it's not an attack, although this guy equates it to that, but it's, it's, it's like where you feel like, and it's a, it's, a, it's a lie of the enemy. Lots of times we get in those situations, and it's our own thinking where we go, nobody understands what I'm going through. God's not for me, he's not around me, and there's nobody in this whole entire church who gets what I'm going through. And it can be even a stinking attitude that we have because we don't allow anybody to comfort us, right? You ever been there? Because there's a certain amount of, um, uh, I, I don't know, so people, and, and we can kind of get in that place like where it's like, um, you know, everybody stinks and I'm just going to eat these fried worms or these worms. What is that? Nobody likes me. Yeah. So, I mean, we can get into that kind of poor pity me. And maybe there's a little bit of that going on with the psalmist in this. That's something else that we can relate to. But in all of this, it gives us this indication that there was some kind of problem that he was facing. Again, perhaps it was physical that was preventing him. He was now old or he had an injury or he was sick. He couldn't get to Jerusalem like he had. Perhaps he had experienced some kind of financial problem. Maybe there was something in his family where he couldn't leave his wife and his kids. Any one of the things that we can all, that was preventing him from going to Jerusalem, that we can all relate to as an adversity in our own lives. But as a result of his adversity, he was being tormented inside and 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 he was battling this well maybe god's forsaken me maybe god's forsaken me however in the midst of this longing for god in the midst of those tears that came to him he said day and night we see in verse four the psalmist beginning to do something he sets his mind to remember the quote-unquote the good old days the better days you ever do that when things aren't going good when things aren't going the way you want. 
when when your dog dies and your and your um, washing machine breaks and your car uh, leaves you stranded on the road. And I mean, all of those seem to be pretty superficial things to some of the things that can go on in our lives. You know, what you guys are dealing with with your your father-in-law, Mike, that's real. You know, with your husband being separated from you, it's like, God, why do you want us to be apart? You know, what's going on here? And in these moments, these real life hard things, we, we come to this point where we go, I remember the good old days. I remember when Jerry was well. I remember when me and my husband could sleep together in the same bed every night and he was there to help me. You know, all of these things that are real. I remember when. You do that? You guys ever do that in the midst of those hard things? And not only we do that to kind of maybe find some comfort in ourselves, but maybe we do it to kind of go, to go, well, right now is not so good. And, and, and he was remembering, he says, he remembers the day when he used to go with the multitudes who traveled to Jerusalem. I remember when I used to go with all my friends. I remember when I could be a part of that, to the house of God. He said, with a voice of joy and praise to celebrate the feast. Now I'm being left out. And the fact of the matter is, is our memories of what used to be, you know what, they can reopen wounds, can't they? The memories of what used to be can, only some, can sometimes further wound us or injure us. You know, it's like, it's like pulling the scab off of something that might be, be healing. And, and it keeps that pain fresh also when we focus on those kinds of things. However, those same memories of what used to be can also be medicine. It can. If we look at them rightly, it can be medicine for our troubled hearts if we, like the psalmist is doing here, then take them before God. If we take them before God. But the honest truth behind the struggle, okay, there's a struggle in that. I'm going to be, the psalmist is real honest with us. Doing that, allowing those memories to be something that is good medicine, as we bring them before God, there's a struggle in that. And he's honest in telling us that moving from the place of despair into the place of discouragement to the place of faith is difficult, to the faith place of trust is difficult. And that struggle is revealed to us here in verse 5. When the psalmist confronts himself, and, and he can, don't you love that, self, oh soul? Have you ever had to do that? Look in the mirror and go, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and that's what he's doing. He's getting real before us and he confronts himself. But not only does he confront it, he encourages himself to what? To not be downcast. Oh, don't be downcast, oh my soul. But what? Hope in God. Wait on him. And in spite of having his hope shattered and feeling as if his prayers weren't being answered, we see that when he was able to get his eyes back on God, and when he was able to give praise to God in spite of what was going on, even though his circumstances were not what he wanted, we see that in doing so, that this is when things on the inside began to change. And often what happens, I don't know about you, but I wait for my, I want my circumstances to change, and then I can feel better, right? But the truth is, circumstances don't always change. But yet God wants those feelings. God makes it so that 
when we put our hope and trust in him, things on the inside can begin to change. And the way that we feel can change truly, even though our circumstances may never change. And that's where we go to this remembering of God. And if you look here in verses 6 through 11, that's where he takes us. You know, in, verse, in, in Psalm 42, in verses 6 through 11, he goes on and he begins to, 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 he says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down with me, therefore I will remember you. And he begins to see something different. Where is he going to now remember God from? Something's changing in this. And in these last set of verses, we see the imagery change as well. If you notice that, the imagery changes from the, the deer panting for the water brooks to this imagery of being in a storm. From, from, uh, and to really what I think the writer is describing to us is no longer a thirsting, but this feeling like he was drowning in his sorrow or in his pain. Now, I've only really, I, I can't say I really came close to drowning, but I felt like if this was it, this is what it's got to be like. And I went to a pastor's conference a few years back, and Pastor Dave Love, who's Calvary Chapel pastor, and Pastor Jerry, who's the head of all the U-turns, when we were getting the U-turns started, he insisted that he was going to take us out surfing. I've never been surfing. I don't recommend it. And they took us out to this place where, like, these waves, there weren't big waves, but I couldn't get past the break. And if you can't get past the break, that's when the waves are, like, crushing down on you. And that's what he's describing. You know what? And every time a wave would crash down on me, you know what I would get done, happen? Is I'd eat sand with my face at the bottom of the ocean. Because it pushes you all the way to the ground. And you're like, and, the, and you know what? And you get up to the top, you can get on your board, and you start, and there'd be another one crashing down on you. That's what he's describing as a result of his sorrow and his pain. Have you ever felt that way? Where the sorrow and the pain and the grief and the hardship and the discouragements and the despair is so great, it's like waves. And you're literally suffocating as a result of it. The storm has come. You're in the midst of it. Nevertheless, in the midst of this storm, we see that there's a remembering. And the remembering shifts from the good old days, okay? He was, he was longing, and then he was remembering, and then he transitions. There's a transition, a, a, a progress in the remembering, not just from the good old days, when he was able to do what he could no longer do, or things were like they had always been, he shifts from to remembering God from the place that he was now at. Not only geographically, first that's where he's at. He's remembering God now from the place where he was at. Meaning, from the land of Jordan, he said, from the heights of Mount Hermon, or for the hill of Mizar. In other words, not just at your tabernacle. I'm going to choose, God, to remember you where you got me at now. But more importantly, remembering God in the midst of his unfavorable circumstances. That's what he's saying to us. God, I'm going to remember you right where I'm at. No matter where I'm going through, whether I'm limited or, or, or circumstances are unfavorable. And the psalmist was ultimately remembering this, that God had not forsaken him. Remembering that God knew the circumstances, that he wasn't forgotten. But more importantly, the psalmist points us to the, 
to the to remembering the fact that God, even though he's in this storm, he's pointing out to the fact that God's in control of it. Look at it. Notice in verse 7 that he acknowledges that the crushing noise of the waterfall was whose? Whose was that? It's God's. Likewise, the same was true with the the billows of the wave that were crashing over him. They were also who? God's. Meaning God was in the midst of the storm. More than that, God was in the midst of the storm. Therefore, he could could hope that he could put his, his, his hope... And and he could place it in God, and because of that, he could still praise God. Even though the storm is upon me, God, ultimately you're sovereign, ultimately you're in control, you're allowing for these circumstances to happen in my life. And lots of times we don't think that's the case, do we? God obviously couldn't be in control of this. Why? It's because I don't like it. (laughs) What? Who gets us the right to determine whether God's in control of it just because we don't like it or because we don't think that God's doing a good thing? The psalmist goes, it's it's God's. It's God's. And in light of this, the psalmist in verse 8, here's a really cool thing that you don't really get to see until you go to the Hebrew language. But in verse 8, he stops using the word Elohim. The Hebrew word Elohim. Every time before this where he talks about, oh my God, or the Lord, it's always the word Elohim, which is the formal name for God. The Hebrew word El. And he transitions in verse 8 with this remembering that it's all God's with the word Jehovah. And by this we see that there was a turning point in this difficult experience. Not with his circumstances, but in his heart, with his perspective, and moving from that place of despair to that place of faith. Because the name Jehovah, that, 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 that was the name that God gave his people when he made this covenant with them. I am Jehovah, God, the God of the covenant. He is the God, by that, what he's pointing out here is that he's the faithful God who promises to care for me no matter what I'm going through. He's Jehovah God. Not just God Elohim who's in the heavens, who's God the creator of all things, but God who says, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I'm your father. I'm faithful to you. I make promises and I keep my promises. Jehovah God, the God who showers his people with loving kindness, gives them promises that they can claim when they pray, hears them when when they call out to them with their prayer and with their worship. And in light of this, in all of this, the psalmist is showing us that he comes to the understanding that he didn't have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. He could worship God right where he was at. And the point is, is our circumstances don't have to change. What has to change is our focus. Our perspective. And so that longing for God, that desire for God to go, God, help me. God, I need you. It transitions to the remembering, and the remembering brings us to this place where we go, oh, yeah. Just like God has always had it, God's always cared for me. God's always provided for me. God's always protected me. God's always been there with me. He is now. Our perspective needs to change. 
And that takes us to Psalm 43, what I don't think we're going to get to, because even though David is the author of the Psalm, um, Psalm 43, the wordage is the same, and it takes us to this third point in the progression of where belonging leads to the remembering, and the remembering leads to the trusting in God. Listen to the words of David. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are, listen, this is where he begins to put his trust, for you are a God of strength, a God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do you go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And again, it's like David's talking to himself just like the psalmist is like, why do I go to this point? Why do I go this place? God's not changed. He's the God of my strength. But why do I go there? He says, oh, send out your light and your truth. In other words, God, show me your goodness. Remind me of who you are. Show me your light and your truth and let them and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. What? To your presence. Let the truth, let the light take me into your presence. Help me to get to that spot, to your tabernacle, and then I will go to the altar of God. What do you do at the altar of God? You make the sacrifice and you bring your praise and you bring your worship. You recognize God for who he is in spite of who you are, in spite of what you're going through. He says, to God, my exceeding joy. And then David busts out in this praise. He says, and on the harp, I will praise you, oh my God. And then again, he's like, he's, he's saying, in light of this, he's, he's using the same words of the sons of Korah. And he's all, he's all, he's all, I, I think it's rhetorical. He's like, he's like, why are you cast down, oh my soul? Have you ever, you ever gotten that spot? Why am I like this? There's no need for this. My God is bigger than this. Why are you cast down, oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? You ever been disquieted inside of you? It usually happens to me when I'm laying in bed at night, when the silence of the day is, has, or when, the, when the, 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 everything of life has settled down and I'm in bed, and man, I do the record player thing. You guys have heard me say this. It's like, oh, and my soul is just like, there's no peace. My soul is disquieted within me. And again, David's all, why? What is the need for this? He says, hope in God. Trust in God. Put your hope in God. The help of my countenance and my God. You know, in light of all this, I'm reminded, and this is what I want to end with, is Matthew chapter 14. You guys remember the story in Matthew chapter 14, the account in verses 22 through 33. And it's that account of Jesus. He's, he sent his disciples through the Sea of Galilee on a boat, and he stayed on the shore behind, Remember? And Jesus sends them out, and he sends them out into a what? A storm. And man, they're fearful. And, and in the midst of the storm, what happens? They realize that there's this figure watching towards them, and they become fearful because of the thing is a ghost. But even in the midst of that, Peter, <laughs> good old Peter, he realizes that it's Jesus, and he says, well, he thinks it's Jesus, and he, he's going he's gonna to make him prove himself to him. And he's all, Lord, if that's you, call me out to walk on the water to you in the midst of the storm. 
And um, Jesus says one word, just come. It's kind of like, what's the big deal? Get out of here, big man you, Peter. <laughs> and, and so Peter does. And you know what Peter does is he walks, he walks on water. And he does so successfully until what? He begins to notice the storm. And he, and, and he sees the waves and the wind. And he takes his eyes off of and, his, and, 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 and he becomes cast down in his soul, so to speak. He becomes disquieted within him. Fear overtakes him and he begins to sink. And that's very similar to what we're reading here. And the answer is the same. The formula is simple. And I don't want to confine God again in his ways to just these three simple things. There's more to it than that, obviously, as we've been talking about. But you know what, guys? The practical thing of this is if we take these things and apply them to our lives in the midst of these situations, we're going to end up in this spot where we'll be able to praise God. We're going to be able to rejoice and worship him and have joy and peace no matter what we're going through. True peace, true joy, genuine. So that even when we're in the midst of the storms, we know that everything's going to be okay because it's not that just God's allowing it, but he's in control. He's in control. And he's doing something good in the midst of it. Father, thank you for this time together this evening. Lord, we love you. Worship you, and I know, God, that each one of us has certain things going on, whether it's affecting us directly or if it's the result of some things that we have because our loved ones are going through hard things or because someone we care about or someone we know is going through hard things. And God, even if it's not right now, we know that it has been, and we know that there will be these things. And Father, I pray that you would help us to live differently than the world that we would um, not be overcome by our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and those situations, but, God, that we would long for you, that we would remember you, and that we would ultimately trust in you. Knowing that you're Jehovah, knowing that you've come to save us, and if you've given your life for us, how much more will you not even take care of these situations that we're in? Lord, fill our hearts with joy that comes from only knowing that you're the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and that all of creation bows to your sovereignty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.